Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania, currently in Lancaster, Matt. And Matt, this is an anniversary or an accomplishment. Episode 50. We made 50 episodes. Yeah. (laughs) And and some of them are pretty good. I mean, so I would say a portion. <laughs> a portion of them are pretty good, and and if you yeah, want to figure out which, don't have an idea that's worth thinking about. Yeah, and if you want to figure out what portion it is, you have to go listen to them. So we're not going to tell you; it's a secret. Yeah, all fifty. Just start back at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. The first one. What was the first one that we did? Yeah, the episode one that we recorded was on um, Ex Machina, right? And then, but we ne- but we never released yeah. it. There's a no, couple that we never never released. No one ever heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is just as well. Yeah. So, so last episode, which was number 49, we watched Mary Poppins in anticipation of the Mary Poppins sequel out in a few months. And this week, in anticipation of another sequel, we are watching Ryan Coogler's 2015 film Creed. Anyway, alongside us is friend of the pod Chaz Howard. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask Chaz what this movie has to do with life and ministry, theology, and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Creed for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be October 28th, the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading, watching, or following. But before we jump in, I want to reintroduce our guest. Chaz Howard is the university chaplain at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Pond River Ocean Rain. He was last on the show when we talked Black Panther as our superhero correspondent, so today he returns as our Ryan Coogler correspondent. Chaz, thanks for coming back and joining us. Gentlemen, happy anniversary, you two. Thank you. Thanks. I mean, it's fitting that you're here, Chaz. You are are an adopted son of Philadelphia. Ah, That's very much the spirit of Creed right there, man. That's one of the the, the messages in the movie. Woo, look at you. And you're jumping the gun here. All right, let me at least introduce the movie. So before Ryan Coogler made this year's Black Panther, he made Creed, which is the 2015 continuation slash reboot of the Rocky franchise that at least I grew up with. Uh, Unfortunately, Coogler is not involved with Creed 2. Got to make that Marvel money instead. But Creed 2 is slated to come out Thanksgiving and hopefully will be a good addition to the franchise. The first Rocky movie, of course, 1976, made Sylvester Stallone a star as Rocky Balboa, the hardscrabble boxer from Philly who charts an unusual course into a fight with the heavyweight champion of the world, who was Apollo Creed. Stallone wrote that movie, and it has a sort of naturalistic melodrama to it. It's very much not of a piece with the kind of 1980s music video montage feel of its sequels. But in 2015, Coogler returned to this franchise to tell a different story, in a way, of Apollo Creed's illegitimate son, Adonis, who leaves a life of comfort 
in order to travel to Philly and find an aging Rocky Balboa and train to follow his father's footsteps as a professional boxer. So this is a movie about fathers and sons, about race and class in L.A. and Philly, and in some ways, in some really interesting ways, it kind of adopts that naturalistic drama that ran through the original Rocky, but also to give it life in a, through a totally different lens. Chaz, I was so glad to revisit this movie, and I'm wondering if you were, what did you notice, and, and how can Creed help us think about the church and the world? I'm so glad y'all are bringing this movie to the podcast, man. It, it's it's such a fresh movie that I think almost universally everyone who went to see it was pleasantly surprised. I think people right. kind of were, were drawn to it because like I like Michael B. Jordan from Friday Night Lights from Fruitvale Station. He's dope, you know, and, and they like Philly. A lot of people here were like, let's go support a Philly movie. Um, and they like Rocky because it was always an entertaining movie. But a lot of people wouldn't say they were great movies. And I think people walked out of here feeling like that was a great movie, which is what I felt. So I was, I was thrilled by it, moved by it. I think a couple of things that stood out to me were the, 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 the updated portrayal of Philadelphia and, right. and what that says about the church in some interesting ways. I was thinking of, you know, the Philly of Rocky One and even Rocky Two is still Philly in the era of Rizzo, who was sort of, you know, police commissioner and, and, and mayor here for a long time, who it, there were painful racial undertones to his administration around profiling and brutality against black residents here. It was still very much an Italian Irish run town. And the Philly of Creed hasn't displaced that, but has sort of expanded the center and, and really shown what black Philly is. And so, you know, one of the sort of iconic scenes of Rocky running through South Philly from the Italian market up there, up the Rocky steps of the museum, you sort of see this portrayed in a different way in 2015 with Creed running through North Philly, ultimately yeah. heading toward that direction too, with not just people cheering behind him, but people on motorbikes and mopeds and all that kind of stuff, which is very much sort of Philly. The old soundtrack by Conti with those kind of classic Eye of the Tiger and din, 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 songs are now replaced with Meek Mill, The Roots, Kenny Gamble, and sort of, you know, the, the Philadelphia sound now. What that makes me think about the church is the way that the kind of center of so much of Christianity has been either in Rome or in England and in Europe and in the United States, where in so many of our denominations, our, our faith is now reflected in sort of the Southern Hemisphere or has expanded a center where you have the head of the Episcopal Church being a black man, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, so ultimately Italian, but coming from South America, and, and sort of an expansion of what it means. I mean, that's the first lesson I grabbed from, from Rocky to Creed. Yeah, there's that amazing moment in, in, the, in the movie where they're at Mickey's gym, right? But, yeah. Which is the South Philadelphia, Mickey's, the sort of Irish Catholic way of being in Philadelphia. But they can't train there any longer, right? And it's yep. a really deft storytelling that's going on, but it's going to move um, Adonis from South Philly up into Kensington, and it's going to like press him into a new neighborhood. And that neighborhood is um, is is looks different, acts different, right? And I I think if you don't know the geography of Philadelphia, that might get lost on you. But but Kugler's doing something really interesting with the story there that that presses. Um, the world into a bigger Philadelphia than you're used to. It's it's a really deft storytelling move that he does. 
It's a very powerful, you know, and, and not to sort of read too, too, too much into it, but it very much is that kind of coming back to your people and the kind of mosaic storyline of, you know, Moses raised in the in Pharaoh's temple and having to come down with his people there. In a lot of ways, Adonis is sort of, you know, the upper class black, wealthy black families kind of made it, which complicated in the story with his kind of journey through Juvie and, and all of who he is. But then he has to come down quote, and sort of train in North Philly, Kensington with his people and kind of come back from where he's in a lot of ways from very incarnational, very sort of moving. Which, which is a through line, I think, in the franchise in some interesting ways, because that what happens in the Rocky sequels and you know, you would be forgiven for not remembering this, but the, what happens in the Rocky sequels consistently is that Rocky success puts him too high on the, on, on the hog. And yeah. so he, he, he gets in some mansion or he's, he's so much a celebrity. <laughs> yeah. That he's, <laughs> that he becomes out of touch with like the drive that he needs in order to succeed in the ring. And so Rocky two, three, four is, it, they're all at some level about kind of breaking him, breaking his celebrity and his class status down so that he can re-encounter that kind of, that working class authenticity that will allow him to focus and and win again. And so I think what Kugler is doing there is is picking up on that through line, but then relocating it within Philadelphia's racial and geographic boundaries, which is I think is, is a really nice reimagining. It's a beautiful point, man. And you know, to kind of get to the the heart of the movie, the relationship between Rock and and Donnie there this kind of racial undertone of, of this sort of adoptive white father and this adoptive sort of black son with all their, their history there, one would think like they have nothing in common because of their race, because of their age, because of their sort of ironic, surprising class with Rocky coming up from kind of poor working class, white Italian South Philly and, and Donnie coming from very privileged in a lot of ways, West LA, rich black but they end up having so much in common from their class journeys, obviously from their passion for boxing, from their relationship with Apollo, which is complicated, which is, again, another beautiful message in such a divisive time here in our country and in our world that there can be some surprising connections and some surprising bridges that can be made if one invests in these relationships and allows himself to be vulnerable like Rocky and, and, and Michael B. Jordan's character Donnie did. And, and I just love the fact, too, that there's, there are three boxing gyms in this movie. The first you meet is the Delphi Boxing Gym, which is Apollo's boxing gym. And and there is this big mural on the wall of Apollo and um and his legacy looms large and Donnie actually can't can't fight there. No one will take him in. And then there's uh then there's Mickey's gym and there's a big like young Sly Stallone looking yoked that's also on the wall there. And finally Donnie can't train there either. And I love this idea that Rocky seems to know at some point, like, okay, I need to put you in a different gym. And because you can't, you can't fight under the specter of these two people, which is another important theme in this movie, which I think the, the church can, can learn something for, which is like, if, if you're trying to live up to the standard of these other people, you're never going to win. But if you continue to fight yourself, Right. This is the this is the theme that Rocky continues to try and draw, like press into Adonis is is like you're not fighting um, to live into the the creed name. You were you were fighting yourself actually at the end of the day. 
And there's that beautiful moment when they start training where he's like, he's like, you see that guy in the mirror, that's the one you're fighting. And, um, mm -hmm. and that's complicated by the history and by this name that Donnie's trying to both live into, but also, you know, escape. But it's, it's beautiful that they, they put him in a new gym and there isn't any mural on the wall. There's nobody there. There's just a ring and some bags, right? And it's in that space that you can actually do something. And I think about this within the church, right? Like how often are we trying to live up to previous ministers or previous pastors or previous leaders mm. rather than trying to also just find our space where we can sort of live into whoever we are? Too real. Too real. Yeah, I mean, I, I walk past the gallery of, portraits of former pastors at University of Presbyterian every time I walk into my office. And I'm sure that's pretty common. Uh, and so that, yeah, there is a, a sense that our churches are all kind of ghost haunted. And sometimes we put their portraits up on the wall. And there, I think there is something real about the challenge of, of living into those legacies. I mean, you know, the, the church is a profound inheritance. And what happens with being a profound inheritance is that it, there's just so much history. The church is just is, is such a profound inheritance. And the problem with being such a profound inheritance is that there are just so many murals on the wall and so many uh, figures there that don't necessarily always leave. It's something I think that uh, I, I don't think we prepare ourselves or prepare our successors well enough for. I mean, I, I think I see this in chaplaincy people who've had to follow giants in chaplaincy, Peter Gomes, William Sloan Coffin, mm. Howard Thurman, and, those and, and it's hard, particularly when yes. there's kind of a memory there of, well, Peter didn't do it like this, William didn't do it like this, or in my case, you know, William or Stanley in, here on campus didn't do it like that. And, and that's hard enough, let alone the, the preaching comparisons and the activism comparisons and the writing comparisons. I think it's even amplified, and we all know the story of the, the pastor who steps down but stays in the congregation. I mean, and what, what's life like if Apollo's still alive for Donnie? And, and maybe there's like the father figure he kind of needs there, but then the shadow could potentially even be even more looming. Yeah, and it's hard because it's, it's, it's an obstacle and it's also an opportunity that he doesn't really want or he kind of resents. I mean, the, the, yeah. you know, he, he doesn't take his father's name at the beginning of the movie. He doesn't want to be known as Apollo Creed's son. But being Apollo Creed's son is what opens up this phenomenal opportunity for him to, to fight on the big stage, to have that kind of uh, potential for st stepping into the upper echelon of the sport. And so it, it, it opens doors in a way that I think is, is very complicated for him emotionally. Yeah, because I mean, so this movie makes a lot about the name, right? And there's this moment in the in the end where, well, Felisa Richard is is a sort of haunting specter in this movie. So she be, she's she's at the very beginning and is able to center the performances of this movie, I think, in a in a very profound way because she's got so much charisma and is is just so much gravity. And so she begins the movie, and then we don't really see her until the very end of the movie, which is the fight. And there's this moment where she gives Donnie the present of the the, the shorts, right? The the shorts he's going to fight in, and they're immediately recognizable. They're the shorts that have showed up in I think like four of the six movies or something like that. And they're <laughs> shorts worn by Apollo, but they've also been worn by Rocky. And in some ways, 
they are the um, the mantle, the sign of inheritance that Donnie is receiving both from Rocky and from Apollo, like these twin fathers that that exist in his um, in his ancestry and his lineage. And what's so amazing about them is that um, the mother has um, has also put Johnson on the back of the shorts, right? And it's just it's a lovely little costuming mm. decision that that Creed is on the front and Johnson is on the back and that like the Johnson part isn't being left behind. Like that's his mother's name. That is, that is part of his identity too. And we never, we never get to meet her. She sort of exists in the background of this too, but she's very real and, and, and present, even though she's very rarely named. Um, but her name is on the back. And I, I just, there was something about that moment with respect to the themes of names and how we adopt names or inherit names um that i found like deeply gratifying in that it that it doesn't leave behind the johnson side of the name and like a dumber movie would have just rushed past that and just given the shorts um but this movie is more thoughtful than that can we talk about this movie's theology of pastoral care um (laughs) yes um um, and I, I'm I'm really curious for both of your thoughts, kind of in two similar directions. One is about this mantra of fighting, um, the 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 way in which and the Creed and basically every boxing movie talk about boxing is that it's it's always mental. The question is, are you willing to fight? Do you want it more than the other guy? And what this movie does is pair that with with Balboa's uh, cancer diagnosis. And so the question is, does Balboa want to fight his cancer paired with does Donnie want to do what it takes to fight in the ring? Uh, And I have mixed feelings about the theology of um, you can beat cancer if you fight hard enough, uh, which Mm -hmm. seems to be a little bit of what happens here, but maybe I'm over-interrogating. I'm also really curious about... The, the way in which the the kind of hypermasculine space of boxing allows Sly and Donnie, or Rocky and Donnie, I should say, to have some authentic, vulnerable conversation. And I, I'm interested in the way we think about this movie as a kind of paradigm for for men's pastoral care and for past, and for mm-hmm. kind of men's fellowship. But so those are my two thoughts. What does it mean to fight, and how do we think about this in a men's fellowship group? I mean, I think, you know, it's it's one of the beautiful and unrealistic, in the sense, things about the you know, sort of seeing characters on the screen and in books is, is sort of we get a better view of what's going on than often the character does or even the people surrounding them. And so, you know, pretty quickly on, you sort of see the demons and the things that Donnie and Rocky and Bianca and Felicia Rashad, all of them are are carrying and struggling and you sort of see that at some point, Donnie's going to need to work through his his father stuff um, and his kind of old short fuse anger stuff. Um, and the question is, when and how will he do that? Will it be through his kind of budding relationship with Bianca, which is complicated and imperfect? Will it be through kind of his maturity in the ring and kind of being desperate? Will it be through Rocky? And so I think one of the cool things that I think as, a, as, as those of us who sort of give care and journey with people is remembering that these things are very complicated. And you get a, a taste of that with, with Creed in that 
there's a lot of, 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 of being, quote, an illegitimate kid. That's a part of his stuff. The abandonment issues, that's part of the short fuse in there. The, the daddy issues, that's a part of it. The kind of being relocated, the, the racial class stuff. That, that It's a really complicated thing that makes Adonis Creed. And again, I think as someone who gives care, we can't just look at one symptom of it. Um, B, it's not just for us to kind of work through ourselves. And so, you know, the, the, the image of him looking in the mirror of, you know, you got to beat that guy right there who you're looking at. Yeah, that's kind of true. But you also need older people in your lives. You need people who love you. You need a team around you. And it's a journey. And it's not perfect at the end. He, he hasn't gotten over the hump at the end. And so I think, again, I think there's a lot to learn about how we journey with people who've got stuff going on. Mm. Well, and I love that part in the movie where he gets to the new, Donnie gets to the new boxing gym. And there's all of these new people who he's going to work with. You know, there's the guy with the mitts. There's the cut guy. There's the, there's the other boxer who he's going to train with. And Donnie goes, I'm not here for them. I'm here to just, I trust you. I trust mm. you, Rocky. And Rocky's like, I can't give you everything you need. Yeah. For you to succeed, you need, um, you need more than me. And there's something really wise about that, that I think, you know, resonates, that resonates with me as you, as you talk, Chaz, which is like, we, we usually find maybe a person that we trust. And if they're smart, they introduce us to other trustworthy people, <laughs> right? Like yeah. that we, we can build the community bigger by making sure that like, that we can, that we can introduce each other to, especially for those people who, who live with, with some pretty deep and significant wounds, mm. right. Who, who have been in insecure positions. What's important is not just that they find someone that they can trust, but that that someone is also introducing them to other trustworthy people because most of their life has been spent around people who aren't right. And so the, the community has to build outward a little bit, I think. Um, Dude, you got to I, I think you really need to underscore that line. because I think it's so true where so many pastors end up thinking that we're kind of super pastor or super counselor and that like we are enough to handle whatever our parishioner congregant, whoever is, is going through. And sometimes that might, sort of be the case but it really is a much better thing if we can triage someone to address a different aspect of someone's journey and create the cliche of kind of village to not only raise a child but yeah. to kind of like take care of all of us yeah I, th I think the movie underscores that a little bit with uh with bianca's character too because it you know if, if memory serves in the first rocky movie i mean talia shire's character adrian is is treated a little bit as distraction right she's mm. she she is she is part of the conflict in the sense that Rocky is falling in love with her, but falling in love with her is distracting from his journey to boxing superstardom. And so, uh, you know, is he going to be able to channel himself to focus where he needs to focus? And here we get the beautiful moment where Rocky brings Bianca, you know, across the ocean to be there at, at, at the closing fight as, as this moment of like, yeah, I'm building your team as broadly as I possibly can. And all these different people are going to take care of you um, as you go along the way. I, I, I think you're right. It, it's if I had to offer a critique, I think in a sense, like of so much of Hollywood, Bianca is objectified and sure. is, um, you know, sort of sex symbol in the movie. 
and even sort of little jokes about not sleeping with her before the fight. I mean, there's a little bit of that. Her character is much more complex than that, I think, with her yeah. hearing stuff, with her art, and 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 the way she pushes the story and pushes Donnie, too. But but going back to one of your other earlier points, so it is still a very, very masculine space, yeah. which is okay, and might be the space that Donnie and Rocky both kind of need to grow and blossom and, and heal. But like the sport, in some ways, I think there are exceptions, Lila Lee and other exceptions there. It's still a very, very manly or sort of historical conception of, of manliness um, space that makes Bianca a guest star, makes his, his adopted mom a guest star in the whole thing. And that's complicated. Yeah, it is. And some last piece on this, too, which I just want to point out is there's that wonderful moment where Adonis is in Adrian's, which is the restaurant that Rocky owns, and, and they're having their first interaction for the first time. And he, Donnie says something like, you know, I guess that makes us family. Uh, and Rocky's like, uh, he resists that. <laughs> right. But the, but, but the next time that, um, that Donnie sees Rocky, he starts calling him unk. Right. And it just, it reminded me of so many different like communities and cultures that I've been a part of where it's like that, that is the term of endearment, right? Like this person's not like your family, but you you have given them space to to say things and do things and be a part of your life in a way that you're not and you call them uncle or you call them t these terms of endearment matter mm. and i realize that that in a lot of the communities and churches that i'm a part of those don't really exist mm. um those little codes of deep affection for someone who is not immediate family kind of have gone by the wayside and i wonder what what trying to like retrieve those look like and how that would affect some of the difficulties that we see when we try and do pastoral care in a sort of masculine environment. Mm -hmm. can, can I throw one little point on there too, man? That's so, it's so beautiful, the kind of family that can emerge. And I think you're right. I love the unk, mm -hmm. Uncle Rock, but it's not dad. And, and nor does, you know, sort of Rocky fully pull him in as son. I mean, I think for orphans and people who lost parents, there's this sort of tension of wanting parental figures, but never wanting anyone to son them. And it's this, it's this hard tear. And uncle is safer than like pops and dad. It, it, that's, that's another level. And as much as Rocky kind of needs a son and family in this movie, even there's, that's got to kind of go slowly, um, which, is, which is complex. And I think, I think I see this too, in and in, in speak very personally, working in a space with 18 year old people who are half my age navigating do I son and daughter these sort of people or are they more nieces and nephews or kind of like little brother little sister or is that even too far are they just sort of clients um, right it, 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 it's a complicated thing for the pastor of how do we familialize people and is it okay and should we and how far how deep in the family do we go these are all really beautiful, profound thoughts. I have a couple of really petty things to say about this movie before we talk about scripture. <laughs> and I, nice. I, 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 I just need to get them out because I love the movie so much, but just a couple of very petty things. One is, is and y'all are the Philadelphia experts, you tell me, but I believe in the Rocky fictional universe, the um, art museum steps have a Rocky statue on top of them. And I know Didn't that... They once, Tess? 
and and th- they did in Philly for a while, and then Philadelphia moved that statue, I believe, to the Spectrum Center. But it's right next to it. It's right down down the stairs, right to the to its left. Yeah. Okay, but like in the in the fictional universe, that sh- that statue should be at the top. So when they climb up those stairs at the end, it was disappointing to me. Just as a matter of continuity, that it wasn't there. Um, second, it's from a <laughs> filmmaking point of view. Gosh, I hate the like ESPN talking ahead narration over the fight at the end. Um, it's like they use it as cheap voiceover because they don't actually. It comes and goes. So instead of um, living into a camera that would be that would pretend to be the broadcast, where you would get the the voiceover the whole time as play-by-play. They just patch it in whenever they need to explain something. And so you are kind of getting the ESPN perspective and kind of getting an in-the-ring perspective, and I wish they would just commit to one of them or the other. Um, I found that super disjointed and a little bit lazy considering how sophisticated the rest of the filmmaking is. Those are my petty thoughts. So about the statue, in in addition to that, that statue is just... um, complicated and made deeply complicated by the person um and life and legacy of joe frazier right who is a philadelphia Mm -hmm. son sure you know and so what does it mean for a city to rally around a fictional boxer when a true heavyweight champion of the world has been born there and gets and doesn't get the type of love in the sort of cityscape that's there and so that i i mean whenever i see that statue i'm always a little bit like i don't even know what to do with it and i recognize that in the fictional universe like in that that iconic image of of rocky at the steps with his hands raised is is worth remembering and in the movie probably should should make itself known and kind of does at the very very end of of creed um yeah, and also in the background, if we're if this movie is going to be a Philadelphia movie, like that statue is deeply complicated and trouble. Yeah, no, I get yep. that, and so I think there's a way to acknowledge the statue within the fictional universe, um, in a way that would be consistent with the rest of the work of the film. But mm-hmm. the fact that it just wasn't there without mention felt disrespectful to the the narrative filmmaking um and so i think there's a way to do that where we we, some we offhandedly mentioned that they they needed they moved it over there they needed to move on or something to let us to to let us reconcile with it i see that right it's a it's a it's a big conversation um that i think is couched in the larger narrative around philadelphia sports and race and that you're right you know in, in in year after year when they do surveys of the most popular Philadelphia athletes, weirdly Rocky is right there at the top. Yeah. And and a part of it is it's such an endearing film and it's and it portrays Philly in great ways and, and that's it. On the other hand, you're right that the celebration of a fictional Italian white boxer over Joe Frazier, one of the one of the greatest black boxers of all time, I think isn't so much a love of Rocky, but it's a, a dismissal of black sports yeah. athletes and the way that they've mistreated Donovan McNabb and like other great black athletes who are who are just like not loved in the same way Alan um, Iverson and, yeah, yeah yeah I mean and, and, it, and it's and it's and it's a racist sort of subtle undertone that's been here for a long time that's not the filmmakers thing that's not the movie right it, it, and I think that so if, if Creed rattles off four or five sequels there will never be a Creed statue 
put yeah. at the top of those. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there's more to that around how like Italian politics and Italian sort of city planning, then that's not to besmirch Italians. My wife is Italian, but like, look, you celebrate your own and you put that out there. Yeah. So, so let's take a break and thank uh, the Christian century here. I, I want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing already. Since um, I'm doing some teaching at Lancaster Theological Seminary this week, I want to turn you to Greg Carey's most recent article of the century on Jesus and good trouble. Uh, Greg is a New Testament professor here, and the article is worth your time. So I encourage you to check it out, and we'll put a link to it up on our show page. Also, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to the century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. Also, I wrote a book. It's now available. It's called The Holy No, Worship as a Subversive Act. Chaz was actually gracious enough to um, to provide a blurb and uh, endorsement on the back of it. And it's it's out now. So head on over to Amazon or call your local bookstore and buy the book. I'd appreciate it. So good. It is so good. good. All right, gentlemen, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We are looking at the lectionary passages for this coming Sunday, October 28th, the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost. This is Job's restoration. We have a wonderful oracle of hope in Jeremiah, a description of Jesus as high priest in Hebrews, and the story of blind Bartimaeus from Mark's gospel. Chaz, as you look at these passages, what sparks for you given our conversation about creed? I'm thinking about the Job passage, you know, I think which is in, in the independent read is such a long, hard journey when one reads it by, by themselves. And, and it does kind of restore at the end after the loving divine tongue lashing from God, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. And, but and it's sort of a restoration there at the end. And it's not necessarily his old kids, but there are other people in new family. And I, I think there's a little bit of a parallel with with Adonis Creed's journey, a guy who it's not just one big loss. He has these kind of ups and downs of life of. A, 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 an orphan in a lot of ways who's locked in juvie and has lost everything that he never even had, then is raised in privilege, and then kind of sort of self-loses it, but kind of literally moves to Philly, leaves it all behind with with not much, with, with nothing. Um, it's all restored again. All the family that he lost is replaced with Rocky and, and Bianca and Stitch and the kind of the gang out there and a new life and a new career. I think what isn't often seen in the Job story, though, is, yeah, praise God, it's all restored, but that doesn't mean you don't have scars from from those old losses. And, and it's hard to imagine Job not looking back longingly at his kind of first original family and in and his first season of life that I think it's hard to imagine that in, in Creed 2, Creed won't still have some of the old scars and grief from the original journey. Yeah, let, let me jump on that because I I was thinking about that Job passage too. I was thinking about it's the, some of the a little bit of light parallel with the uh, the blind Bartimaeus reading because they're both in some ways about vision. That one of the through lines through Job is his desire to see God face to face, kind of calling God into the courtroom to to stand an account for what God has done, and then in this restoration he says, you know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Uh, mm. So just like blind Bartimaeus, whose faith has made him well, Job can now see God. And I, I keep thinking about that scene at the end of Creed in the fight when Adonis has now 
swollen over his right eye and he can't see out of his right eye and the ref is going to call the fight. And so the ref kind of puts a hand over his left eye and starts holding up fingers. How many, how many fingers am I holding up? How many fingers? And Stallone has his hand on the back of Creed's neck and starts and just starts tapping out the, the number (laughs) that, that, that the ref is holding up so that Creed can lie and, 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 and know the answer, um, even though he can't actually see. Um, and there's something about like we have we, we actually can't see, but we have confidence and determination enough to go out into it anyway, which seems like foolhardy and inspirational at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. um uh Creed has the best cut man in Philly, right? That's he's introduced that way. He's the best cut man in Philly, but they can't fix the eye, which is part of the problem in Job, is that you you can't as you were saying, Chaz, you like you can't fix the wound that has opened up in this book. But at mm. some point you just kind of you patch it up and you do it in defiance of all the objective crap that's out there. And you do it almost with conspiracy. Like you've got your the folks in your corner that'll that empower you to do that together because you still have to go into the fight and because you want it. And there's something really honest about why we believe a thing and why we do it with confidence that, that lives in that for me. So I, I keep thinking about that scene as, as a kind of lived allegory of it. Mm, well said. So I, I have something else I want to talk about, but I want to, I want to reflect on that for just a second, Matt, because I think there's part of me that is terrified that with each passing day of growing older, I'm I'm losing some of that foolhardiness, like Russian a little bit too much, stupid enough to not know what I don't know and therefore try something <laughs> like truly crazy. Um, and there's something about watching these movies that is inspiring, not just to see like someone triumph, but also to see them try and do something that's kind of stupid, right? Like, like why should you keep fighting? You're you're putting your face like in your eye and that you're you're just endangering yourself in a number of different ways but there's something that you're that you're rushing for and maybe you don't know what that's like and what the real consequences are but that's part of what allows you to sort of succeed and that sounds stupid a lot of days in my life but then there are days where i think i wish i had a little bit more of that i wish i was still yeah i wish i were a bit dumber and i didn't i couldn't weigh consequences in the way that i weigh consequences now and and that tension remains as someone who tries to do creative work right like i want to do something creative but i know in order to do something like truly creative it has to risk and it has to be a little bit it has to risk being stupid or being seen as stupid or actually just being dumb like just a bad idea um and i'm 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 getting safer as I grow older and that sometimes pains me another day. Mm. It feels good. So I'm trying to, I weigh that in my own life. Um, I want to talk like when I was watching this movie, it, it, it's the, the figure of blind Bartimaeus continued to sort of show up in the back of my head. If only because by the end of the story, he's no longer blind Bartimaeus, but we call him blind Bartimaeus forever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, but there's this, like, there are these little monikers that we get. And this is like, especially true in boxing. Right. It's not, you can't just be Adonis Creed. It's Adonis Hollywood Creed, right? Like you, you get 
it's Rocky the Italian Stallion Balboa. And these nicknames stick, even if you are no longer the representation of whatever that nickname was, right? Like by the end of the movie, Donnie is not actually Hollywood any longer. Like he's been adopted. And yet that's still sort of, that name sticks with them. And you, you carry that name around. And over time, hopefully that name becomes a sort of badge of honor rather than some indication of of, of a problem or, um, or some deficiency, right? So I, I wonder if everyone still called Blind Bartimaeus Blind Bartimaeus well after he was, um, he could see, if only Oof. because it's a sort of like, way that we honor this sort of this previous person and we take hold of that identity and 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 grab it and hold on to it and i'm wondering what that would mean for for us as we try and retrieve these old nicknames and and re-embrace them as valuable or popular or i don't know these are i just i keep thinking about that name i think it's really fun to say blind Bartimaeus. And in that way, it sort of like fits with the, the boxing, um, one of the rules of the boxing nickname, which is like, it's gotta be kind of cool to say, but, <laughs> um, but everyone has like great nicknames. All the boxers in this movie, when they do the little like fighting card, um, which is like a little stylistic thing, they always have like some nickname in quotes. And I just, I kind of dig that. And I was thinking a lot about that while I was reading the blind Bartimaeus passage. Uh, well, gentlemen, I think that about brings it to the end of our time with Chaz. Chaz, thanks so much for joining us. Be well and come back and join us again soon. You guys are the best. Happy anniversary. Congrats on the 50th. Looking forward to the, the next 50. And I love being <laughs> with you. All right, Matt. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Matt, what's your postlude for the week? Well, my post is, is a little bit of a, of a sequel to what we just talked about, because I want to talk about the second best Sylvester Stallone boxing franchise, which, which is season one of the 2005 NBC Mark Burnett produced reality show, The Contender. <laughs> yeah, this is the era when Mark Burnett was flushed with Survivor money and was trying to replicate the success of Survivor and all these other arenas, one of which is The Apprentice, and one of which was the contender. Lord, how I wish those fates had been reversed. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, the the contender uh, is the the setup for the contender is that sixteen boxing hopefuls are living together in a house, and they compete in physical challenges to determine the two who will get to fight under the lights at Caesar's Palace for one million dollars. And it is hosted by Sugar Ray Leonard and Sylvester Stallone. This is a, this show is actually a decently big deal when it launched. This is two million dollars an episode, uh, and and but really tanked on NBC in the spring of two thousand and five. Came back on a variety of other networks and actually has just come back again on the Epix network. Mm. But it doesn't have the like Mark Burnett gloss on it. It has become a a boxing show and not like a super. A, a, a super tinsel wrapped reality show with you know family drama and people living together and all of that kind of reality show cheese but the best part of this show and this is a pretty heavy segue from what we were just talking about in terms of 
Balboa's legacy. The best part of this show is that the show thinks that Sylvester Stallone is an expert in boxing. <laughs> and it, so Sylvester Stallone is hosting the show, but in every important way, Rocky Balboa is hosting the show. <laughs> so, I have to watch this. So it, it thinks that Rocky Balboa is a living, real person who was there alongside his contemporary Sugar Ray Leonard, and together they are helping you understand how to box. And so the physical challenges that the teams in this show, the kind of very arbitrary physical challenges they have to do, are basically taken from training montage clips in Rocky movies. <laughs> so, so instead of like practicing at the gym... Or having them spar at the gym, they, like, race up a really large mountain and do the, like, rocky prance with arms in the air when they get to the top. Or they, like, pull trucks along a racetrack. And then Sylvester Stallone, who is a professional actor, comes out and gives them advice and feedback. You can watch a bunch of episodes of this on YouTube. It scratches a very particular itch. But what I'm fascinated with is is what it says about the power of popular oh culture that these fictional figures exert such influence over our reality. So like as Chaz was saying before and I'm 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 changing it up a little bit but like I think you could argue that culturally speaking Rocky Balboa is the most important boxer since Muhammad Ali. Obviously there's a lot of racial complexity in that but it's just also super fascinating for me because he doesn't exist. Yes. Anyway, that's that, that that's my postlude for the fascinating. week. You I should mean, definitely go watch some random YouTube episodes of this show and then I'm, take a, take I'm a long going shower. To, first of all. And I mean, it there has to be some interesting like media studies criticism about this phenomenon, right? I mean, I Yeah, like, I mean I I was in my second year of film studies at the University of Iowa when this came out, so I was very obsessed with it, for particularly all these reasons. And so I, I may have like brought clips of this into classes I was teaching at the time, um, but I don't. I never actually sat down to to write the in this paper I will kind of argument about. But I think it. But I mean, yeah, the, it's, 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 of, it's there to be written. The myth yeah. of Rocky. I mean, even like that statue in particular, things like that. It just yeah, it, it is fascinating how. I think I think it also matters that the sport itself was waning as Rocky moved into the sphere of boxing, right? Like, so the most important right, sure. athlete in the world for about a hundred years was the heavyweight champion of the world, sure. you know. But that was replaced by football players, by basketball players, by all of these other sport, um, by all of these other athletes. And now, like the most recognizable recent figure is in boxing is Sylvester Stallone, right? Like that's right. that's crazy. Okay. My postage isn't as good because that's incredible and so fascinating. But um if you get a chance, go and listen to some Jason Isabel tunes. I have you do you yeah, like man. Jason Isabel? I love Jason love Isabel. Him. And I've been yeah. um uh I've sort of just I, I I guess it makes a lot of sense. We're basically the same age we have the same social location and political bent and he's like obsessed with Bob Dylan and writes Americana music. These are all like, these are right up my alley. These are basically the same sure. thing that I am, but also he writes incredible love tunes and, and can get sort of schmaltzy in a way that, that makes me happy. But more than anything else his his lyrics and his music just seem to like work well together. 
And I don't know yeah. how to explain that, except that they're both really thoughtful. And I've found his music to sort of be one of those moments of um, of delight in a world that oftentimes is um, pretty grotesque. And so uh, I commend the, the, the music of Jason Isbell. It's something that I've been listening to a lot lately, just as a way to like move through my day. And I consistently find something interesting that he says and the, in the music and in the lyrics. So it's great stuff. It is. Were you, were you a drive by truckers fan? So I, I kind of was, and I think, um, I, you know, I was familiar with some of their music, um, but really it was only when he started doing solo stuff and with the 400 unit yeah. band that he was with that I, that I sort of took a deep dive. Yeah. I, I I've, I've enjoyed like new Jason Isbell and also enjoyed drive by truckers and they're some very differently, very, they're very different musically. Um, but I find they both scratch itches that I occasionally have. And so it's been nice to have that through line kind of work in different places in my life. Anyway, agreed. All right, Adam, that about wraps it up for today. If y'all like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love to get the feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page of technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. And our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Free Meek. Hey, thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.